Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello! And welcome to the Hopcast. We're not on a racing track, honest. <laughs> no, I mean, that's the first time we've seen some vehicles passing through. Uh, we're actually in a village called Witheridge, but this is show number 84 of the Hopcast, and uh, in many ways, it feels like attempt number 104. Yes, we, we, we have book. attempted a few times. So if you're listening to this, this is the one that got through. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Uh, the batteries died on our machine just a moment ago and uh, wiped out our uh, 15th attempt to record this and show. And we were really witty and intelligent, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, I can't say it's going to happen again. So the magic <laughs> we'll may, not try. Be, may not be as intense on this attempt. Anyway, welcome to the Hopcast. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books. UK independent publishers of the following genres. And bear in mind, Rebecca is going to try a Devonian accent. You judge whether it's any good. Cider killers. Right. Okay. Well, you've, you've cheated, really. Thrillers. Okay. Crime. Suspense. <laughs> and mysteries. Oh, dear. Right. Okay. Uh, to <laughs> the people of Witheridge, which is a small Devonian village that we're currently having a holiday in. Uh, we do apologise for that attempt. Well, luckily, there action. weren't any pass, pass, people passing by when no, I did that. It, so. It's been really funny because um, just before we started this recording, there was a bloke in the Land Rover driving past us giving us the biggest stare because I've, we've got the microphones yeah. and the headphones on Why we're sitting on a park bench outside the church of Witheridge. We look important with these microphones. Yeah, we do, we do. Oh, hello. Big lorry, yeah, big Scottish lorry. What's he doing down here? He's lost sat nav, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, um, just explain where Witheridge is. It is, I say, a small village, very small, uh, quite sleepy, quite francophone in this well, not francophone, French feeling, yeah. So, you, you said this to me a couple of days ago, and at first, I poo pooed your idea. I think, like, what are you, you talking did. about? <laughs> it's definitely very Devonian, but. Since then, I've been looking around and sort of sitting in this on this bench in the town square, thinking he's right. It does feel slightly French. Partly, it's to do with the architecture. There's sort of these very uh, sort of cuboid buildings with uh, long sash windows yeah. that remind me of uh, the centre of France. You know that sort of yeah. Loire Valley. Yeah, area. That, that, that pink building over there is exactly is. I mean, the shape of the windows is so French. But the other thing is, this place is just full of French vehicles. Yeah. We have... Um, Pergos and Clios and... Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Peugeots and Clios. Uh, Citroëns. We have a, a Citroën H5 van, which is one of those old sort of corrugated iron vans, which is outside a French bistro, which opens two days a week here in this village. We have a Renault across the way. We have another Renault. We have a Citroën van parked next to our car. We have another Renault. We, it's just a, a wash with... French cars. I love that you can spot the make of car. So to me, there's a red one, a black one, a grey one, a white one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or oh, even that van, I think, is French. Yes, it is. 
Anyway, um, the fact is that uh, we're here on holiday and we are in this village, which is one of those places where basically almost all of the roads out of it are single track uh, and uh, full of tree tunnels, as you call them. You know, they're basically canopies of trees. Yeah, so where the trees meet over the road. Uh, I mean, it, 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 for, for us... I mean, we we live in uh, Staffordshire where we have a single track road approaching our barn, which can be a bit hairy at times. But to actually be living in a county where pretty much every road for miles around is single track Mm. with high hedges, it's terrifying at times. I've had some really interesting experiences trying to drive us around. Yesterday, the sat-nav took us off-road, literally. Thank goodness we have a 4 by 4 I had to put the off-road button on. And it was... um, well, it was, I mean, pothole beyond belief. Uh, but you still managed to read in the front seat. See, it amuses you, doesn't it? That I can I can read in the car, wherever we are, whether it's a motorway, whether it's a pothole Devon <laughs> road. Yeah. I, but I, it's because I've got good suspension in my elbows. So I sort of hold the book away from my lap and I can sort of move it with the motion of the car and I'm fine. Oh, that's, uh, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, we have been tr- trundling around Devon. We have, you, know, you might get the feeling from the, the Hobcast that we're always here. Um, it does feel that way. But uh, we've brought the kids on our first family holiday in four years. Uh, proper holiday. Yeah, A week away. Nice. Which has been lovely. Uh, they're back in, the, um, back in the cottage, desperately waiting for food. So yeah. we, we, won't, we won't detain them too much longer. Let me just mention who our guest is this week. It's Malcolm Price. And Malcolm Price is a brilliant author of a, a series of novels which, well, we were in Wales last week. We were staying near Aberystwyth, and he has written the Aberystwyth noir Louis Knight novels, which are a slight pastiche, but they're brilliantly written, of uh, the hard-boiled detective fiction of the 1940s and 50s, but set in Aberystwyth. So his first book in that series was Aberystwyth Monomore. <laughs> uh, he's brilliant. Uh, thinker on the, the subject of writing um, he's gone through sort of periods of being ex- fated by the crime community and then disappearing from view uh, but we managed to find him in Oxford we and, did, and not literally but that's where he was yep and we had a wonderful conversation with him so looking forward to that interview with Malcolm Price a little later into the news, something that's dominating really the, the whole universe of well, it publishing. feels like it, yeah it does rather there is a, a, a big legal case going rumbling on in the United States which has been brought by the Department of Justice against the proposed merger of two, well, the two biggest publishing houses in the United States in Penguin Random House. And Simon & Schuster. Can you imagine those two companies together? Well, certainly the Department of Justice don't think it's a good idea uh, and they are challenging it legally. And uh, there have been some star testimonials. They had Stephen King. I know. <laughs> who who was deeply opposed to... He, so he took the stand to give testimony to say that this is a really bad idea for publishing. And I, I thought it was admirable for, for Stephen King to say the things he did because he... Uh, look, he doesn't need the money. He doesn't no. really have to care about the, the publishing, uh, I suppose, um, community. The smaller, the smaller writers, the, the authors, but actually he was passionate in defence of uh, their right to work and, 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 and command even the modest advances or royalties that they get. 
and uh, he was uh, also very defensive of the independent publishing community, which was 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 heartening. Yeah, and I think in in response, um, whoever was speaking for um, Penguin Random House and Simon Schuster mm. said that um, authors would rather publish with a publisher than um, by themselves. Yeah, they well, actually said that they believe that. Yeah, they do believe that because you don't make any money as an independent. Um, well, you know. We're still battling to, to try and make that sort of money, but there are plenty of people that we've spoken to on this podcast who have made millions. So let's not, uh, let's not denigrate that, that thing. And also the Department of Justice have actually advanced that argument as well mm. to say that independent publishing, uh, is, you know, is, there is no money in it. And, and again, that raised eyebrows, certainly amongst some of the people that we've spoken to. Uh, uh, Rachel McLean was uh, particularly... Um, uh, peed off with their comments so I mean it's it's an interesting thing but I, I, I think that there has been so many so many examples of consolidation in the publishing industry of people merging uh, um, I mean clearly Penguin Random House uh, was a merger in itself between Penguin and Random House now they're trying to add Simon and Schuster there's been a lot of it in this country uh, independent um, labels and, and publishing houses being swallowed by bigger companies uh, it's you know it's a lot of it about, and it, it seems to be a volume game. You know, the more you can control the marketplace, the way that that's the way companies feel. Yeah, uh, you, and I think that's something to do with the fact that there's a lot of private equities gone into publishing, in particular uh, retail as well. I mean, let's not forget that Waterstones and Barnes and Noble is owned by a hedge fund. When it boils down to it, yeah. Okay, it's run by James Daunt, but um, that's uh, you know a factor. But with these things, there's always a tipping point, isn't there? I mean, you know, you studied economics. That uh, uh, um, uh, gathering into a monopoly has economic benefits until you get to that tipping point. Mm, mm, absolutely. When it becomes like herding cats, <laughs> or, or getting teenage <laughs> children to uh, to be ready for the beach. Um, it's a private joke there. Oh, a bus? Goodness me. Double-decker bus. Is that coping with those roads? It is terrifying when you meet, uh, you know... Uh, we've had quite a few examples of tractors. Oh, we, I mean, we've seen almost as many tractors as French cars, actually. Yeah, it's been extraordinary. <laughs> we've been stuck behind so many of them. Or a combine harvester over there as well. Well, actually, on our first full day here, we were all um, in the cottage, uh, relaxing, doing our own thing, watching football or whatever. And um, I was upstairs, and I could hear the sort of... A rumble, a rumble, a rumble. And eventually I thought, what's that? And it was a whole line of antique tractors, weren't they? Oh, yeah. No, there were about 30 of them. Yeah. They really were antique uh, tractors. Um, you know, we're talking about tractors from ranging from the sort of 40s through to the 70s, I think. It was fascinating to mm. watch. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was, yeah. We're very, it is very rural around here, that's for sure. Okay, um, uh, 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 the second thing that we wanted to talk about before we get to the interview was... Uh, comments made by Anthony Horowitz, the fabulous author, who uh, was speaking to The Telegraph this weekend. And he broke cover at the Hay um, on Why Festival uh, by, by saying that he deeply opposed the movement which was trying to restrict authors to writing only what they know from their own background. He obviously feels very passionately about this, doesn't he? Because he's yeah. come up before um, in this subject, and you know I'm on his side. So he's emphasised it again, and, and in fact we talked about 
with this with Malcolm Price later in the interview. So uh, anyway, uh, Horowitz says um, that uh, he was writing a book. He writes a lot of children's books. Uh, the Alex Ryder series has made him a lot of money. But his new standalone, Where Seagulls Dare, uh, he got notes back from his publisher that absolutely shocked him, I quote. Things I could and could not say. Children's publishers are more scared than anybody, he added. So, uh, um, and he write, then writes, or says, it's wrong that writers are, be, are running scared. After a pause to gather his thoughts, it's wrong that writers should have to worry about what they're writing and that they are following the agenda rather than setting it. It should be creative people who decide what is or is not acceptable. These days, the nervousness, the cancel culture, the fear of offending, of causing a Twitter storm or a sudden laser-like focus that some writers attract, like J.K. Rowling is the obvious example, strikes me as worrying and saddening. It's very sad. The reasons for this new intolerance are partly political and partly sociological. Uh, Social media has changed the way people debate. Arguments are now no or yes, black or white, good or bad. It is a form of censorship. I mean, you know, there's no rules written down, but it's still a form of censorship. Yeah, that's right. And censorship on it is, is... He goes on to say, so many of these discussions are couched in ways that mean there's going to be no outcome other than anger and violence and prejudice. There are some areas that I won't go anywhere near, not because I don't have opinions, but because airing those opinions will do me and the world no good. Well, and then he was asked... Which areas does he have in mind? You can imagine, he says, all the isms. (laughs) This is the heart of what we're talking about. If I answer your question and say race, that opens another particular box. If I say trans, that's another box. Just saying that I'm not interested in these issues will possibly make my life difficult. You asked what I fear, and it's that. That's what has made life difficult for writers. In the old days, people could throw a sponge brick at the television. Now they can go on the internet. Newspapers are never far behind. A lot of newspapers quote people from Twitter. Why are you doing that? You're the guys we're reading the paper for, not to hear what this guy foaming at the mouth thinks. And then this is a a, a crucial question. Would he write a black character today? The fact that I have to pause before I answer is sad, he says. But in the twist of a knife, there is a Native American character and the book had to be... uh, had to have a sensitivity reading. I was quite taken aback by some of the suggestions, but I didn't argue with any of them because I don't want to be involved in a row about ethnicity. At last, he concludes that he would write a black character if the story demanded it, but probably not a trans one. I don't think I have enough understanding to do it. Yeah, and I, I, I do take his point. I mean, I would feel the same way. There's a, a, a different level of understanding in those two different types of characters. So Yeah. Um, well, it, I mean, it is, it is basically, you know, a bed of nails at the moment in this sphere. And it does limit what you can do. But as he says, look, do I limit myself to writing about, um, a, a, you know, a retirement age author who lives on a beach in all well in suffer exactly that's my point exactly i can only write about a 51 no 50 year old female who lives in staffordshire now who wants to read that mm, i don't <laughs> i live with it i don't want to read it that's for sure humph 
It's amazing how many people are parking up to get buy their pasties. They do. So the, uh, the other morning, uh, myself and uh, Toby, my youngest, we sat here sketching these French-looking mm. buildings, and we attracted so much attention. People stopped, asked what we were doing. Um, one man posed for me, expected me to draw him. I Did think. he get? He didn't do a life drawing. No, not post. life drawing. No, okay, this is Devon, not France. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's, it's, uh, no, it's been blissful. It's so hot here at the moment, and uh, thank goodness we're under the tree uh, as we get to our interview. I was going to say, we should go to Malcolm. We should, we should. Well, we spoke to him uh, last week, and uh, it was great. I mean, it was one of those things where spontaneously we picked up the book, loved it, got in touch with him. He said yes, and he has taught at Oxford University. Uh, creative writing so he's got a great deal of uh, background in it he's if you sign up to his website it's brilliant you get um, I've had seven emails now full of wisdom about the craft uh, brilliant he's so funny very very good at um, breaking distilling uh, key advice in a, in a memorable way and sometimes quite rude way actually but <laughs> he's um, he's brilliant and uh, so it was a great pleasure to speak to Malcolm Price it's a great pleasure to invite and uh, to be joined by Malcolm Price on the Hobcast Book Show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's um, one of these weird moments where, to be perfectly honest, Malcolm, you hadn't entered my world until we decided to come to Borth this week. And then we said to ourselves, right, we're going to do something themed around the literary heritage of Aberystwyth down the road. Uh, and then I, oh, there you go, there's the. Oh dear, that would happen. The curtain falls down <laughs> um, behind us, so now we're in silhouette as if we're we're, we're a pair of criminals. I do apologise for that. But um, what I was going to say is, uh, so I, I get onto uh, you know looking around, and your name comes up with the most amazing series of books uh, that immediately drew me, uh, and I have in front of me, "Don't Cry for Me," Aberystwyth. Um, which I started last night and absolutely adored every page. But I, ha I have to just add, though, that I had seen your books because um, the caravan we are currently in belongs to my dad and my stepmom, so I've been here loads of times. And I always take my boys to uh, bookshops in Aberystwyth, so I'd seen them, but it was our sort of first proper encounter with your work. And so when we reached out to you, we were so glad that you, you could come on this week, so uh, thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. And they're terrific. I mean, honestly... Um, Rebecca will tell you when I started reading last night I was chuckling and chuckling and chuckling which I'm sure is what you, uh, you wanted but I was drawn into the to the brilliant story I mean this is a, a Louis Knight mystery um, Father Christmas is murdered in the snow <laughs> and then I just read I was reading chunks to you wasn't I yeah uh, because I mean in the context is this is that quite often um, when we're dealing with our authors and we we have 22 of them they come to us and say, what is it that I could improve on? And often it's the landing a description of a character. And you have a pair of twins here, murderous twins. Uh, and it was so good. I just thought, well, I'm going to send this around to everybody. because this, <laughs> this is what I'm after. Even though I know it's tongue in cheek, you landed image after image after image. It was absolutely brilliant. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, which was the twins? Was it the Moth Brothers? The Moth Brothers, yeah. So a while since I wrote that. It's probably about 10 years. So <laughs> you should, maybe I should read it. <laughs> well, I might, I, I might, I might indulge and, um, and do a bit of narration in a minute when I find the, the section. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think you, uh, you described it as that they had um, faces the colour of candle wax. 
looked and the uh, and the feel of um, uh, earwax or something. Yeah. That's good. Well, I love that because you could just imagine it straight away. Well, I think I think the serious point is that you know fiction is basically a guided dream, and the whole point of when you're writing it is to give the information for the reader to basically be there, right, to see it and make it palpable and visible. And so that's basically what, you know, Show Don't Tell is all about. It's about creating it so the reader feels like they're participating in the story rather than just hearing about it. That's the reason, really, for the obsession with detail, I guess. Yeah, but it's more than, you know, just obsession with detail. I think it's the fact that you can, in a paragraph, you you brought together these guys uh in my mind they're now very very real I, I appreciate that's what you're trying to do but it's still a massive skill to do that because quite a lot of authors I think um and I'm not necessarily talking about our own here but you, you can shy away from giving the readers stuff because you think oh well they'll make it up in their minds as to what they look like and then increasingly I think also there's another there's another thing that's in play here but uh, for instance a lot of male writers feel very difficult I think it's very difficult to describe women. And, and in fact, I'm trying to think now who, who it was recently, very famous author who said, was it, um, uh, it will come to me in a minute, but basically he was saying, I've stopped describing women because oh. uh, I'm I'm in danger. Ian Rankin, wasn't it? No, it wasn't Ian. It was Ian McEwan, I think, was it? Oh, it was, was Ian it? Rankin, I thought. Oh, well, well, it was Ian. Let's was, just call him Ian. Yeah. <laughs> um, saying that, you know, the, 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 with the Me Too movement and all the things that have gone on culturally recently, that, um, you know, he doesn't feel comfortable that he, can, he should be describing them. Um, but where do you stand on something like that? Well, that, that thought has never entered my head, actually. Yeah, that's <laughs> <good>. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we talk about, like, providing detail, but the detail you're talking about there with the, the two Moth brothers, for example... It probably is because they're they're bit players, and you don't you're not going to see a lot of them, so you've got to get them across very quickly. Whereas there's no detail about, for example, the, the narrator Louis Knight. I mean, there's I mean Philip Marlowe, for example. I know that he's tall, you know, in the, in the Raymond Chandler novels. Mm -hmm. That's the only detail I know because I think some of the girls in or the ladies in the stories refer to the fact that he's tall, but that there's no other detail. But because I'm with him for so long in the story, I just fully imagine him. And it might well be that I imagine him completely different to other people. Because I'm, I, apparently, I mean, I, I can't say this for sure, but apparently Anna Karenina has no real detail describing what she looks like. But you get, you get, you, you form the impression of, of those lead characters because from what they say and they do and react yeah. and you're with them. But with the little characters, it's, it's, it's vital to sort of make an impression with them, which I think is probably why you had the sort of, description of the moth brothers yeah I, it really really hooked me in I, I it's an interesting thing because i i i it, it, before i became a publisher i would sometimes we had a lot of colleagues at the bbc who, who write a novel we all we all aspired to do yeah. it and, you know yeah. because of the nature of what we did which was we were we weren't even producing something substantial as tomorrow's chip paper because you know you don't print it it's, it goes out on air and it's gone um, and unless it's something remarkable, it doesn't get repeated. And um, so we all wanted something to show for our lives, which would be a book. And I remember reading one of my colleagues' books, and it was, um, yeah, it was, it was along the lines of it was a noirish uh, novel set in Shepherd's Bush where he lived. <laughs> um, but 
every single item of clothing would be listed. And I know that a lot of authors trip into this, you know, the type of robes he was wearing and also apparently this is supposed to tell you something, but actually it's just a list. <laughs> but this, this, your imagery just lands so, so powerfully. But I think you can tell something about somebody without the, the exact detail of their shoes. You, you can work out that they wear robes by something else. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think you know, normally, I mean, oh, yeah, we talked about a couple of characters who you know sort of went to town on, but normally you provide one or two details, and then the the reader imagines everything else. But those two one or two details are like prompts which you sort of need. And if you if you imagine imagine for example the opening of Snow White, the fairy tale, it says that yeah, once upon a time a queen sat by a window snowing as it. Uh, sewing as the snowflakes fell outside that's all it says but when i hear those words i see i see the castle i see a pointy hat on her head you know, <laughs> and, and i imagine maybe there's a spinning wheel and the tower upstairs and things like that i see the whole scene but most of those details have been provided by me mm. but they wouldn't have been provided if it had, had not been given those prompts that's interesting what you said about anna Carena and philip marlowe as soon as you said philip marlowe an image came in my head so I must have got that from somewhere in the book, reading the books. But like you know, I didn't realise that he's only described as tall. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's amazing. And I've got the passage here, so I want to, if you'll forgive me for just reading a few few lines here. They were identical twins, so alike it was said that the only way their mother could tell them apart was from the pattern their tiny moth teeth left on her nipple when she suckled them. In later years, it was their victims who had to, buy, had to be identified by their teeth. They had heads that were bigger than they should be, and big eyes, and were placed too far to the side of the head. Their skin had the pallor of candle wax and the texture of earwax. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely superb. And, um, you know, I just love the, the way you, uh, you know, the, the motif with the teeth is... is, is well, me too, as somebody who has had children, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, I get that. <laughs> you see how I can imagine what it's like to be a woman? <laughs> well, there you are, yeah. No, me too for me. How dare you? How dare you in this current day and age? Presumptuous <laughs> of me, really. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's an interesting... It's just a thing that we've returned to time and time again, actually, the, the whole, you know, are we... Do we have the right to depict things that we aren't um and you know i'm staunchly of the view well you could circum you uh unless you're writing about a 51 year old ginger haired bloke well i can't even talk about that because i'm 52 now so oh, that's yeah not... sorry <laughs> but you know people need to you know no one can understand the pain of a 52 year old ginger bloke with uh with you know half his teeth missing i can understand the pain i live with you know, it I, I would never i would never use ginger hair as it, pejoratively you know I, I would never do that in my novels you know that's like just a cheap crack isn't it you know, well it is it is a little bit and but the, the, the interesting thing is i used to this this was uh, as i started to fall out of the bbc because of the um well one of the issues i had was this extreme move to making sure everything was not only diverse but accounted for yeah. I had a real problem with this. Uh, there was a, a campaign that started about five years ago uh, called the 50-50 campaign. And this meant that you had to reflect everybody uh, sort of gender-wise, 50-50 in every single programme, balance it out across the whole thing. And so everyone just ran around booking guests for the sake of having you know, a woman. Getting the balance. Even mm -hmm. though the person you really wanted to speak to was, was a bloke. Uh, and then now they've got this issue where they've got to try and represent as many 
um, of the 150, no less, ways of self-identifying. Mm. And so now they've got, I don't know if it's 100, 150, 150. I bet campaigns. you couldn't name them. No, I, well, of course <laughs> I couldn't. But this, this, this was this was my thing so people you know we used to, I used to be in meetings and go and they would go well you wouldn't understand you're a white middle class male from the, you know going to a, a middling university and all that sort of thing you're exactly the problem and I said oh, well, what university a middling university well we went to middling. Middling. middling I've never heard that phrase I'm throwing it in there just oh. to try and, <laughs> try and knock it down um but basically I used to turn around and say hang on a minute do you not realize that I am a diabetic puts me in some sort of disability category and b I'm also ginger, so don't tell me I don't understand um, the, the issues of. Uh... <laughs> don't challenge your ginger privilege. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I digress. But I mean, this is this is a hot, a, a hot topic. I did present. you know? Did, did you know that there's, there's a, a ginger day every year, and somewhere in America, where every, if you've got ginger hair, you can gather and celebrate your gingerness. I'm going to go. All power of the ginger. Yeah. Let's get back to, to your writing and, and your work. Um, so we have, what, six novels in the Aberystwyth series? Yeah. And they were written some some time ago, uh, between 2000 and, I'm just trying to remember now, 2007, is that right? Um, no, I think a few more came out after okay. that. Yeah, maybe 2010. I'm not exactly sure. I'm actually writing one now, actually. I almost finished it. Well, I was going to say. That was the exciting thing that I saw on your website that you're actually writing another one, yeah. which you know, originally titled "A Streetcar Named Aberystwyth." Ah, oh, love it. So, I mean, why? I mean, why Aberystwyth? I think everyone would like to know why Aberystwyth. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I went to school there, I presume. Yeah, yeah. we know. Yeah. Right. Um, well, it's almost impossible to say. I mean, it's like it never occurred to me. I mean, the, the stories began yeah, many years ago when I was just trying to write radio plays or something, and it one featured a guy in a coma, and in his coma, the town library blew up and all the characters were released from the books. And that, that you know, mutated over many years into one of the characters, you know, surviving that, basically, that's Louis Knight, the sort of you know, hardball American private eye character in Aberystwyth. And that 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 sort of conceit, if you will, like a Philip mm. Marlowe type character in Aberystwyth, remained. So I didn't really set out with the intention of writing it about Aberystwyth, but once that conceit came into being, it was obvious that I would write it. And obviously, then I'm drawing on the well of my my sort of childhood spent in Aberystwyth, and you know, sort of twisting and, and changing it a little bit. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, it, I um, I once thought about writing something in this style I mean I haven't read enough um, Philip Marlowe books or whatever um, to to really uh, understand the genre but it's always appealed to me um, or slipping into character you know the, the sort of uh, you know chewing out the side of your cheek and um, you know uh, exaggerating well, he the, has. yeah you know everything I, 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 that sort of hard-boiled thing but um what drew you to that to 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 use that genre to uh, you know in a satirical way i mean had you read all those books and then it, it had that been the sort of plank of your your literary education perhaps well it's interesting when when my star was in the ascendant some years ago i used to get invited to writers sort of festivals and, and gigs like that and everybody 
automatically, the crime festival was there, and everybody automatically assumed that I was a big reader of crime fiction, whereas in fact I'd never read any. But <laughs> I had I had read all the Raymond Chandler books because they're so brilliant, they, they transcend the genre. It's like they are utterly sublime, and if you haven't read them, then it's a treat lying yeah, in sure. store for you. Sure. They, you so I, I knew nothing about the mores and the tropes of crime fiction, except what I'd seen in films and on TV and got from the Raymond Chandler books. So I had to spend years winging it at these crime <laughs> 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 trying to pretend that I was, I'd read all these other authors and I hadn't. And so that's where he came from. But there's also an interesting thing about Aberystwyth and that it is a very strange place. It's like unique. You don't, I've never been anywhere in the world, even like in Borneo, I've never been anywhere where I haven't sort of told people from, from Aberystwyth and they haven't heard of it. Yeah, even a tribal elder in, in the middle of Borneo had heard of Aberystwyth. It's like everyone's heard of it. And yes, yeah, so there's a really unique, strange quality to it that's, you know, that you can't grasp directly and explicitly. You have to sort of do it obliquely. And it sort of summed up with, when I told, you know, I was working in advertising, and I was working with a TV um, director, and I mentioned Aberystwyth, and she said, oh, she'd been there one weekend with her partner, and they're going into town to buy a roast dinner for Sunday, right? And they got all the bits, and then they needed some parsnips, and they went into a grocery shop, and there were three parsnips left, and she, and she said to the owner, oh, I'd like, you know, three parsnips. And she goes, oh, I don't know. If I, if I give them to you, would there be none left for anybody else? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and that story sort of, I don't know, just captures it for me. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, it. you see, th- I've only been, the, the, this is my second visit to Aberystwyth. You, I've been, been loads of times, Absolutely. I love it. And my connection to it was vicariously through my um, classics tutor at uh, Exeter University. Uh, Dr. John Marr and um, actually, Mr. Not John Marr. Not Johnny Marr. No, that's what we used to call him, Johnny Marr. Um, Johnny Marr, he was a mister rather than everyone else was professor this, that, and the other at that place for some reason. Oh, he's but a ba- surgeon then. No, 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 no. <laughs> but basically, he um, he was a ref- refugee because the classics department here was shut in the uh, early 90s. As the, the, the number of them were shut around the country and they everyone was forced to either give up and retire or move. And so he came down to Exeter and he, he always felt completely out of place in Exeter, even though it's, there's, there's certain vibes that are similar. He just missed really? with terribly. He used to tell me all the time how much he missed it. And, uh, you know, I, 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 that's that always stuck with me. I cannot see the similarities between Exeter and Aberystwyth. OK, <laughs> all right. Well, we'll debate this off, offline. <laughs> but he had this magical spell as a result. And I was wondering um, what was so magic about it. And I think now I've been, it is that juxtaposition of one of the best universities in the country. Uh, at the end of a railway line, I always think places which are, are terminus <laughs> <laughs> adds a certain element. And of course, the seaside and the fact that um, it's getting a bit run down, isn't it? And, you know, I love it. Every asp- I think it's one of those places, dare I say it, where they ever, wherever they probably try to improve things, it gets shabby quite quickly. Is that fair? Um, well, you should have seen it in the old days. It's only fairly recently that you, you were able to get a cup of cappuccino in Aberystwyth. You know, traditionally, yeah. it was either camp coffee, you know, that stuff was in the... Oh, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or one of those Kona jugs, you know, where you just like sort of lukewarm 
diluted water. So it's really had a renaissance in recent years, the arrival of the Marks and Spencers and Tesco's yeah. and an escalator. I mean, there, never, there was never an escalator. Yeah, you had <laughs> In the old days, if you wanted to, in the old days, if you wanted to, you know, go for a ride on an escalator, you had to go to Shrewsbury. But uh, so that was a, a big change in the town. And yeah, there's a there's a deli on Pier Street, isn't there, which sells like olives. <laughs> like, <wow. laughs> Greenery is available in the shops now, well, not just parsnips. Yeah. I have a little story for you. So I applied to Strabworth University in 1990. And the reason I turned it down, this is how an 18-year-old thinks, there was no Marks and Spencers then. No. And I thought, I can't live in a town with no Marks and Spencers. <laughs> well, I can sympathise with that because I think Marks and Spencers you know, made frequent efforts to come to Aberystwyth, but the sort of local tradesmen resisted this you know, because they didn't want, for whatever reason, didn't want the competition. So it was a great shame because I think Marks and Spencers then went down, down the road to Carmarthen and it's only recently that these stores, which we Aberystwyth is crying out for, have been allowed to sort of open. But it's much better for it, I think, because of them. I think Aberystwyth, despite you thinking it looks run down, the, the arrival of proper restaurants and, and you know, a, a deli and a you know, decent supermarket has added a lot to it, I think. I yeah, agree. That, I mean, that... he is from Cambridge originally, so I think compared to Cambridge, Aberystwyth probably looks a little... Shabby. Well, you're in Oxford, so you know what I mean. And um, I used to live in Oxford as well, so we've what? actually got a lot in common because yeah. I used to live in Shrewsbury too. We know you. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> and that's another thing that made me chuckle last night was a re reference to the Shropshire Star. Um, the story <laughs> reached the Shropshire Star, so um, that was a you know that made me giggle because uh, we're always fighting to get our uh, any news of our latest book releases into the Shropshire Star. Um, oh really? Just a couple of times. I've been in the Shropshire Star, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Um, so in terms of um, getting to this next book then, I mean, this is quite a gap. Um, is this a response? To, what's, the, what's the impulse here? Is it a response to the people who've asked you, when are we going to get another one? Or is it that desire to get back to that character and, and to this world? Yeah, um, I sort of, there was a gap, which I did a different series at the behest of my publisher, and I don't think it was all that successful but it's done and dusted now. And so I sort of was left as a, as a free spirit. And it was just a sort of, you know, if it's like being a round-the-world sailor, isn't it? You come back and you swear you never go to sea again, and then you don't for, for some months. And then one morning you think, I'll take a walk down the harbour, you know, just yeah. to look. And before long, you're sort of provisioning a ship, you know, and then it just takes on its own life, really. So, so it's really, it feels a bit like coming home in a way as well. It's like having babies. Each time you have one, you think, never again. I think the way the, the women generally say that because it's quite a painful undertaking, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think writing a novel is, is painful <laughs> in that way. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, the, the point is it, it can be pretty agonising, can't it, from giving birth. And so they will say, I'm not going through that again. But then they see the little child running around and they forget. And I suppose it's the same with, because whenever I write a novel and look back at the previous ones, I just can't believe how much work has gone into it. You know, it's like there's so much you know, detail and you know, it's go through numerous drafts. And if you did take cognizance of that, you might not ever write another one. But there's some <laughs> little imp inside you, like, you know, the, like the mother deciding to have another child, that you just do it, you know. Yeah, that's... So do you think you have a writing imp then that just makes you want to keep writing? Um, well, I definitely think that one, writing is a vocation and... Yeah, in the same way that 
you know, the salmon returns to the river of its birth to spawn, and she doesn't know why. Uh, I think you want one right in response to this, some, some urge like that. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I mean, you hinted on your website that it's going to be self-published this time. Is that the case, or are Bloomsbury going to pick this up again? Well, I don't know yet, because um, I, 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 when it's finished, I'll hand it over to my agent, and she'll see what we can do. But if they don't want it, then that will be mean it'd be unlikely that any other publisher would be interested because Bloomsbury have the, the backlist. So yeah. they got the other six. So in that case, I would you know, self-publish it because, you know, I, I don't feel I've got anything to prove in, in, you know, when it comes to being accepted by a publisher. And there is a very thriving, you know, Kindle self-publishing you know, community out there. And the great thing about it is being writers, they just write endlessly about how to do it. So the, the amount of information available free or online about how to self-publish, how to do the advertising, the marketing, the packaging, every aspect of it. So it, it would be an adventure. So I'm you know, quite happy to try that route. But we'll see if, uh, if you know, Bloomsbury are interested. Well, well, we look forward to seeing it. And um, look, we'll put our hats in the ring with the Hobeck. Uh, <laughs> There is one publisher already interested. Just put it back. We'll park that we'll here. We may not be in public. Um, we would love to. But the um, it's an interesting thing you, you, you touch on there about the amount of information out there uh, to help uh, self-published authors and get people you know, having independent careers. But you are in that field as well in terms of the craft. And we've been um, deliciously enjoying your uh, YouTube videos about... All right. I love the bus idea. Yeah. We're going around the bus around Oxford. Thank you. <laughs> it's terrific. And and I I was saying to Rebecca this morning, I said, I don't know how Malcolm's done this because he's managed to distill basically half a term's module at some MA course in the space of seven minutes about how to um get people page turning, for instance, uh, with your 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 concept of the three C's. And it well, I mean it's not your concept necessarily, but it, you know, you distilled it so well. Um, and a flatulent donkey, but I, I'll, I'll leave you to explain what all that might be. Well, that all began like when I returned to the UK in 2007, I was approached by a Professor Sandy Byrne at Oxford, who was a fan of my books, and she asked me if I wanted to write their, their sort of online writing fiction course. And I say, yeah, I'd be delighted to. And of course, I had no idea how to teach writing fiction. I'd never read a, you know, a textbook in my life, you know, just did it instinctively. So I set to work reading some. And then I took, you know, wrote the course and taught it for maybe 10 years. And during that time, that information which I'd read became like internalised. You know? It's like you can grasp something intellectually, but with time it becomes part of your, your heart, doesn't it, your instinct. So yeah. then I left and I wrote my own course. And then that, I launched it quite successfully, but then I took it offline to, to make it much better, which is what I'm doing now. So then I launched this YouTube channel as a means ultimately to you know, market the course you know, or to sort of... You, you use as a you know, directive towards the course. So that YouTube channel's only been up you know, three, three or four months, but it's a, like, a long-term thing. I, you know, I, I imagine I need to get like 20 videos up before it sort of starts getting noticed by Google's or YouTube's algorithms. But it's been you know, enormous fun. And I, I, I know what you mean. I'm sort of doing the best, A, to distill the, the, those, those teachings and then give them a sort of funny t- twist and then link it somehow to... An Oxford location, which is not particularly difficult, because <laughs> you can't go anywhere in Oxford without running into some sort of you know trace of a former writer or you know some larger than life character. 
we're, we're actually going to put it on our we've got a facebook page a, a group that's just our authors so i was going to put a link and say oi you lot watch this <laughs> uh, that would be very kind of you because as i said it's it's very new and so it's sort of completely unknown and you need to get traction for the algorithms to notice that people Absolutely. are noticing you well that's the whole and and that goes back to what you're saying about the independent publishing community and self-publishing is that's exactly what the battle is all of the marketing is around trying to get those algorithms to recognize what mm. we've got on offer well, we and spend our lives, as many people we? into it as possible so mm. it, that's our life that's that's one aspect of our lives as, as independent publishers but yeah, I love the the imagery and the thing that appealed to me as much as anything. There you are on an open top bus, or at least the shots are done on an open top bus. And this is this is my background. I mean, I did seven years on an open top bus tour of Cambridge. He was a tour guide. There are people going around the world, it probably mostly in Japan, I think, who believe things about Cambridge that aren't true. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I used to try Aberyst with mate. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that was one of the great fun things about what I did was, you know, there were plenty, of, as you say, same in Oxford, so many wonderful stories that you can tell, but then there's nothing like a little bit of embellishment or uh, adding to the folklore of the place. And so I've, I've added two or three stories, which are now I found in guidebooks, which were <laughs> sprang in my head when I was trying to fill time in a traffic jam. Now that you've made it, if one of your made up stories is in a guidebook. Well, there, yeah, the, the story it, it, I'm, I'm referring to is the, uh, for some reason, part of our tour would take us around to the back of Emmanuel College. And the back of Emmanuel College is essentially the bus station in Cambridge at Drummer Street. And you could see from the top of our bus over the wall, the high wall of the college, to a swimming pool. And it was the fellow's open air swimming pool. And around this swimming pool, there were these gigantic ducks waddling around. And so everyone used to comment about the ducks. My God, they they're would, huge. Yeah. And so it just quick as a flash, I said, well, the reason is, is because every time a fellow is appointed to the college, they are presented with a duck. <laughs> and the fellows uh, slip a stipend to the groundsman to make sure that their duck is well fed. And so therefore, these have become the fattest ducks <laughs> in the university. All right. I didn't believe there's 42 ducks. I said, there's 42 ducks, 42 fellows. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, sadly, though, for the ducks, if the fellow passes on and the college <laughs> flag is flying at half mast, that duck is then presented at a formal dinner in the memory. Of You're Shedford. so mean. Uh, well, I see what you did there. <laughs> anyway, it's now in guidebooks that this is what happens as a college tradition. So uh, that is entirely my, my fiction uh, under pressure. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, most, well, not most, but an awful lot of those sort of things you find in books about places is not true, right? But people, if it sounds like it might be true and it gets into a guidebook, then people, that's a source, right? That's a, a legitimate right. source. I mean, there's, for example, there's a passageway in Oxford, which um, near, right near the Rat Radcliffe camera, and there's a doorway with two sort of lion heads nearby. And people say, oh, this is where C.S. Lewis, when he wrote Narnia, was being inspired. And look, on this doorway, there's a lion's face, right? And I look at it, and I've, and, and I've passed, I've repeated this story. I've said, oh, yes, this lion on the door would have been the inspiration for C.S. Lewis when writing about you know, Narnia. But I think, actually, the, the, the face on the door is uh, the green man, right? The sort of the traditional mm -hmm. English folk. And, and it looks slightly leonine, 
but I think it's the green man. But I've 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 seen so many tour parties stopping there outside that door, <laughs> telling the story, <laughs> and I'm thinking it isn't true. It isn't true. But but nobody cares, right? It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it does it in the end. <laughs> no, we all want to believe, and I think that's one of the great. Things we that... we love stories as human beings. We well, I'm now stories. getting into into a really deep philosophical area with a, with a, an author of such as yourself, in, in the sense that yeah, we all want to believe, but we all want, you know. The, the, we are prepared to suspend our disbelief uh, and I think that's one of the great weapons in the in the arsenal isn't it for, for an author you can actually push things quite hard uh, and people will go along with it well think about it you like you can make a tough gangster cry at the death of Bambi for example or, <laughs> or, or a winged elephant and and that, that's the beauty of the, of the words once upon a time or anything which you know, when you read your eyes come to rest on the page, but you don't discriminate the words. You pass through them, don't you? Something happens. You pass through them into an altered state. You know, as I said before, it's a dream. And anything could happen there, and you never challenge it. You, you know, see, this says once upon a time there was a winged, winged elephant called Joe. You don't say, no, there wasn't. You, you, just, you just totally accept it. It's true in the context of that dream. And that's the, that's the real beauty of it, isn't it? It's like something changes in you, and for a while everything is possible yeah absolutely in terms of your writing then I, I what i wanted to go back to is part of your career in advertising as a copywriter how much of a help or a hindrance was that discipline when you came to write novels well i think um if i was i'm, I'm going to tell you, use this for the next youtube video because i think it's absolutely fundamental because when I, was, when I was teaching that, the Oxford course, for example, a lot of, you know, they had to submit an assignment. And a lot of people start writing as if it's all, all, I know, automatically entailed that someone will read their words, right? They, they don't make any effort to make sure they grab me by the lapel and you know, force me to read. And, and that's because, we're, you know, we've been tricked in childhood by, by, by the state, they hire people called teachers to read whatever we write, right? So we, we emerge with this thinking that, if we write something, it will be read. But in the real world, it's completely different, isn't it? You, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you must get you know, hundreds of thousands of people submitting your manuscripts, and they're you know they're competing like against a huge you know, you know number of other people. And so you have to bloody make. You know, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> no, you are. You're entitled to say that. <laughs> you really, you really have to you know you, um, sort of try hard to stand out. And the point about advertising writing is you're writing to people who don't like you and wish you were going away, would go away, right? You're a mm -hmm. pest. And so you have to grab their attention and not, you know, if, you, if, if you're writing a piece of advertising copy, you cannot possibly let them, you know, escape until you've gotten to the end of it. And I think that's a really sort of you know, interesting discipline. You're aware all the time that their attention is, is a gift and you can lose it at any moment. And I think that that, that sort of really yeah, guided me when I wrote Aberystwyth Mon Amour, which is the first one, obviously, yeah. even the title. I mean, I love the title. And, and, and the title is like probably the most important part of any book because it's, it's the one thing the agent or the publisher will read, right? If you email them and say, I've got a manuscript called <laughs> Aberystwyth Mon Amour. You know, if you wrote to them and say, I've got a, a, a manuscript called Magnolia, or beige, beige <laughs> days. I've got a manuscript called Beige Days, and they get one saying, I've got a manuscript called Aberystwyth Mon Amour. Then instantly, their interest is going to be directed towards that. And, that. and I think that applies to every single facet of the story. So I think advertising, copywriting is, 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 a, is a great, great trade to be trained in.
yeah and also the tightness the the the, the trying to deliver all of those things you know not just engage every word matters in that situation but in, in so few words it's, it's it's not dissimilar to broadcast journalism um in the sense that you know if you have a one minute um slot uh and that, that was the typical length of a match report that I would be writing for 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 um tv on a football match or something like that the maximum number of words that you can fit into it are three words a minute uh, a second is 180 words to tell that story and actually it would be doing everyone a disservice if you used every single second with your you know talking um you need to let things breathe pause, a little bit. yeah yeah so you're dealing with possibly you know a good report would probably be about 130 words long and it's not dissimilar in advertising you've got a really crap you know if you've got a 30 second slot and you've got to hook, hook people in and you've got to leave room for the music and the imagery and the and whatever performance that is in front of people that's, that's not very much to work yeah well i agree yeah yeah it's in, it, it that's a, an interesting thing i mean in terms of the way that when you're working then because of the nature of what you've done before professionally um prior to to to, to, to concentrating on, on, on fiction um are you a quick uh first draft writer or <laughs> well, the complete opposite that says a lot <laughs> yeah i don't uh, i don't understand how people do that you know write a draft and then send it off it's like no my 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 novels go through numerous distillations you know seven easily six or seven drafts maybe more and you know, the first draft, I would throw away like 70% of it. So then work with what remains. And so it's like making a, a sauce in a you know, sort of French cook, you know, sort of kitchen, isn't it? You sort of you heat it up and reduce it and reduce it and reduce it. And that's, you know, so definitely not quick at all, but, you know, very long. And, and it, which is different to advertising where you always have a deadline and there's no choice about it. But noveling, novel writing is obviously more, more relaxed. So, yeah, I mean, one novel will usually take a year and a half. Yeah. Right. OK. And in terms of, I mean, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that you're when you're writing in that fashion, you're your own number one critic. But when you're writing for something, I presume, in advertising, there's a whole bunch of people from different departments who have an influence on what you do and, you know, think nothing of uh, tearing it apart and uh, you yeah. know, spitting it's you out. That's the daily experience, isn't it? That you write something and then a whole line of people queue up to destroy it. I mean, it's actually soul destroying. In fact, do you, do you know? Do you remember the the movie The Elephant Man? Yes. Do you remember when the the surgeon took him under his wing and took him to his house and introduced him to his wife and she shook his hand and he burst into tears because no woman had ever been you know nice to him more. Yeah. yeah. They had to look at him without grimacing and he was like he, he couldn't he could stop crying. I like that like that when I submitted my my novel to Bloomsbury. Everybody treated it with like real respect and treated me with respect and I've never experienced that before because in advertising everybody you know, has has a chance to change your work and basically destroy it and when it came to the novel it was like the editing decisions were always like well if, if you think or if you'd like you know it was I was never told to do anything you know, there were suggestions which is the opposite of advertising absolutely yeah that's interesting isn't it yeah so you get more res I suppose more respect for the words as a, yeah. as a novelist I think so chosen. I think um, this is the interesting thing with publishing isn't it because in a sense um authors uh can be well I mean, there is a pedestal waiting for every author, I think. And within publishing industry, there are certain people who revere the fact that someone's had the, the courage 
and the tenacity, I think it's probably the better word for it, to actually finish a novel. Uh, but then again, uh, that's when it's accepted and it's going to get published. That, 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 that's the pedestal that everyone's waiting to get to. And then the crime festivals follow and, it, you know, all that stuff comes with it. But when it's on the slush pile, it is waiting to get trashed. Mm. And there, there's a very, it's, it's almost like a binary situation. I'm, 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 this is just popping into my head. So. Mm. Um, and I, it's interesting because as you, as you suggest, we have a, we still have quite a few manuscripts, even though we've been shut for submissions since September last year, because of the sheer number that we got and we haven't worked through them all yet, which is terrible really. Um, the fact is that in many ways I approach a, a, a manuscript and trying to find things that I don't want to publish. <laughs> oh, almost it, like know. the opposite way. So you're yeah. looking at what you don't want. As opposed and to what then you when you want. decide that you do want it, you look for all the positives and, 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 and you know, obviously the editing process will, will yeah. comb out some of the things that need strengthening. But at the same time, you know, that's a very, it's, a, it's kind of like you flick a switch. As soon as you've committed to a project, it's the best thing that's ever been written. This author needs to be, you know, in front of the book committee. <laughs> we do a bit like that, don't know, we? We get very excited. Down. All of that stuff. It's a weird, weird. But also, we, we tend to decide quite early on. We've only read a couple of pages when we say, oh, I like this one. <laughs> and well, it's why... really rubbish on page three. <laughs> well, that's why I said about, you know, like every single facet, starting with the title, it has to be as, as good as you can make it. Because I put myself in the position of someone reading a slush pile. You know, maybe they hire, you know, pay for readers or maybe they do themselves. But I would, yeah, have at this, you know, imagine have a huge pile of manuscripts and I'd just skim the first page for reasons to dismiss them, right? And say, looking for errors, gas, red flags, anything re to say you don't have to proceed with it. And then you'd whittle, I, I assume, you whittle down the pile to the ones you can't do that to, then you take them more seriously. That's how I would I imagine it happening. And of course, it's, it's like totally unfair, you know, it's like, you're totally unfair because established authors don't get, you know, treated like that. They can write pretty ropey stuff and it'll get accepted. <laughs> but the world's not fair, and that's just the, the ground rules, aren't there? So I, I, I tend to agree. But I hadn't really thought about the transition, which you just mentioned, that is once they've accepted it, then they're on, you know, they, then they change completely and looking for things which are good in it rather than reasons to do, you know, reject yeah. But, I mean, for me personally, the first line is vital. If you've got a great first line, then I'm going to read on. So how do you feel about the, just the first sentence, the first sentence of a book? How important well, is I actually, I go against the flow on this one. I'm not sure, sure I agree with that, because, although everybody says it, because I have a feeling that readers don't look don't stop and admire the first line they, they they sort of it's like a doorstep which is step over and oh, but the authors and 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 you know fetishize about first lines and you see yeah. a list of them they're great yeah i love to read them but i think the first paragraph is far more important because you you don't stop at the first line but you definitely will stop in the first paragraph if it's not working that and so i i I'm, I tend to be wary of the the sort of like pressure to make the first line a masterpiece because i think it very easily distort what's you, you you try and shoehorn your first paragraph to fit the first line whereas yeah. you shouldn't have done that i mean there's a, well, one famous first line is that um this is the saddest story i've ever heard do you remember that what's some what's some what stories in there but the re the next paragraph has nothing to do with that line right it's clearly you love the line and put yeah. it in but the paragraph doesn't refer to it at all so it's a, it's a red herring and i think 
possibly a little lack of discipline there. So I, I think that I'd be more worried about making sure the first paragraph zings, you know, rather than the first line. But as a reader, well, I love to read those, those first lines, lists of them. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've got a collection of first lines. Do you have a favourite first line? Uh, I have a lot, yeah, lots of them, yeah, but I, I quite like the one from Camus when he says, Mother died today, or, or was it yesterday? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I'm just thinking because I've always I spend too much time thinking about the first lines when I'm writing. Well, one of our authors, what was it that the, the old lady walked into the police station and with a severed head and said, What are you going to do about this then? or something uh, like that, wasn't it? Well, that was Brian Price. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's not that's not that, how it, no, it flows better than that, obviously. Uh, it did. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up in a minute <laughs> on, my, on my Kindle. Uh, so, your uh, opening couple of lines here, I, I think, are great here. Amorous with at Christmas, the smell of pine drifts along the prom, mingling with the reek of bladderack, toffee apple, vanilla. And wet donkey fur, which we smelt yesterday, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the whole town smells of it. <laughs> well, it's funny because we we went yesterday. So before we looked at your book, we went yesterday, and I said to Adrian, I said, "Smell Aberystwyth. It smells of raw sewage, decaying seaweed, salt, and vinegar." Yeah, there is an I love that though. That's that's the British seaside, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Brighton sort of mixes it up with. Oh, you Brighton's know, a bit posher, isn't it? Only slightly. It's still got you've got the added smell of uh, hen party vomit. Oh my! On the uh, Brighton seafront. <laughs> I used to be a reporter there. So, uh, well, the greatest smell though at the seaside is hot dogs, isn't it? And I, I do a sort of whole page long riff on the smell of hot dogs because they are actually the most disappointing smell in the world, aren't they? Because it, they, they, smell, they smell utterly divine. But when you eat them, they're awful. Right? They are. I hate. They don't hot deliver hot. on that smell. I know what you mean. The smell is it makes your mouth water, doesn't it? And... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, in, in in terms of um, the way that uh, your your career has has developed in terms of fiction, um, you talked about the, the you know the rising years, the the years where you know you sort of were invited to festivals and. You know, you felt you were. So we go to a lot of festivals. <laughs> <laughs> now that 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 phase and that period where you know the nationals were were, were competing to to write up amazing lines about your writing um, and all that stuff. Uh, where are you now? Do you think? What's your assessment of of uh, the, the, you know at, at this stage of your career? Um, it's very difficult to answer in it's oh, no, a, a horrible question i'm sorry i threw that <laughs> i'm buying time so i can find the first line of brian's book out to pasture i guess the quiet years but so all that stuff has gone but i don't greatly care because i can i feel like i've, I've done it you know for my, you know I, I sort of you know i climbed my personal everest you know got accepted by you know a very respectable mainstream publisher got very good reviews by the press and so that's all done and i can just sort of concentrate on writing what i want to really so yeah mm. yeah no, I, think, I think that's that's good though, isn't it? Because yeah. Well, I think um, I think there is that thing. It's interesting because I've talked to a lot of my friends, all of us around the sort of fifty mark now, where we've come to that stage where ambition isn't important anymore, and that's quite a transition because all the way through our thirties, we're trying to get on to the next thing, especially in the BBC, you know, with all the sort of um, whatever it might be that we were chasing. Uh, and actually, it's just a, and now I've left the BBC, it's a whole lot of of uh, ephemera and, and the nonsense really but at the time is what drives you along and then you reach a point in your life where you think do you know what um that isn't important i want to do stuff that means something to me as opposed to what anyone else thinks of it um and is that fair 
Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And, but it's easier once you've done it, you know, you've, you've done it and then moved on. I mean, I remember reading one of the sort of stellar authors, might have been Ian McEwan or something, saying that he was, I won't say it was him because it was not a flattering portrayal. I don't know who it was, but he was upset that he didn't make the shortlist for the Booker Prize. And and I, and I was thinking, you know, if I made, if, if I got onto the long list and I was bottom, the last one, that would be the greatest achievement of my life. And it, it, you know, it, it didn't even bother me, you know, thinking about, oh, I'm not making the Booker Prize this list. But if you're in a, a situation where that's a problem for you, the fact that you didn't get to the shortlist and that's sort of making you unhappy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm jolly pleased I'm not in that sort of realm, if you know what I mean, because I'm now totally relaxed about, about, about the writing. I think you're always going to be disappointed, though, aren't you? If you're always striving for a particular, very particular thing. Yeah. Unless you get it, obviously. But even then you get it, how do you feel? Do you think, oh, OK, I've done it now? Well, it was interesting, wasn't it? When we were at Harrogate last week for the for the Feakstons Festival, the big one, and Mick Heron finally won the Prime Lord of the Year. I think had five nominations for his previous slow horses he was like the bridesmaid but never the bride wasn't and it for a while? what i really appreciate about him because we, we spoke to him the day the day after wasn't it um he won it or the day maybe two days after it just how sort of that feeling he, there was no triumphalism there was just relief right that he didn't have to be the bridesmaid anymore he didn't really <laughs> he was he, you know it, it wasn't so much the winning of the thing itself as just Wow, thank God I don't have to He was very modest about it. Very modest. Because... And he's a fellow Oxford author. I don't know if you you meet in the King's Head or whatever. It's been. <laughs> King's <Yeah>. Art. <laughs> Regard, uh, not the gardeners, the um, bookbinders I used to go to. Yeah. All right, yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't met him. <laughs> no, no. Oh, I mean, it was just just really nice to see somebody for whom, you know, who's always taken a very, you know, any success has been, uh, it was a long time coming. So, as he said to us in that interview, he had a review in a national newspaper, and it, uh, what you know, one review in a national newspaper, and it was thirteen years before another of his books got another oh. review. Oh, really? And, and now he's, you know, one of the kings of UK crime writing at the moment. And you know, obviously Gary Oldman demanded that he got to play the big role in the TV adaptation. But it's funny, books. isn't it? Because some of our authors they don't understand why we can't get them in the Times, and yeah, <laughs> not for want of trying, but you know, it just. So, I mean, if, we look, if we're looking at the next book that, that you know, um, uh, that's coming out, what would you, what are you going to judge it by in terms of those sort of public acclamations? Is, does that bother you at all? Does the fact, you know, would the national press praising it mean a great deal or it get nominated or you get back into festivals? Does any of that matter anymore? Or is, is it just simply the, the question of delivering a great book? Well, the thing is, obviously, any of those things, if they happen, would be nice. But seriously, I don't care because the part, a, a big part of why I'm, I'm, I'm writing it is because you've been to my website, so you see I've got a sign-up form there for my yeah. mailing list. And, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm always surprised that, almost, you know, three or four times a week I get an email telling me that someone signed up for the list. And you know, I'll write to them saying, you know, how did you, you know, what's your story, whatever, how did you come across the books? And it is really amazing that somebody 20 years after you know, I first published my first novel, that they're still you know, seeking me out and signing up. And so it's almost like I, know, I already know that there's 
there's some people out there who would really enjoy it. You know, there's a, a small band of people on my mailing list who would really love it. So it's almost like a yeah, personal gift in a way to, to, to write another one. So I'm totally relaxed about it. It'd be great if great things happen. But if, it, if, it's, if it's finished and produced and, you know, self-published or whatever, I'd be very happy with it. Brilliant. And, um, it's a great website. Though. I signed absolutely. up yesterday. So that's, that was your email yesterday. Oh. <laughs> it's, you know, that sort of thing. If one reader is touched by it and loves it, then that's, you know, that's a good I one. used to have that vision, though, when I was an aspirant pop star in the, when I was about 14 <laughs> and I used to dream that I'd be, end up being David Bowie and it never happened. I would, I would have this thing of I don't mind if I'm performing in front of one, one person or 90,000 people. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but actually, that, it does kind of matter. Well, one person's a bit. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but you know, but I used to have that 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 imagining. But I think it, 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 there is something very special, especially if people take the trouble to read your work and then get in contact. Yeah, I love, must admit, as publishers, I, I love engaging with people in who email us to bother to say, "I love this book. I really enjoyed this book. Or I love your podcast. Or, I love what you do." One person does that a week. I love it, and then mm. my friends alive. <laughs> yeah, I found that. Um, oh, the Brian Price. The Brian Price. Yeah, it's happily. It's part of the the blurb. Yeah, Amazon. I put it in the blurb because I love it. <laughs> yeah, it Here we go. The small grey-haired woman grimaced as she entered the police station, dragging a tartan shopping trolley containing her husband's head. What are you useless buggers going to do about this? <laughs> yeah. right. I, I do confess, when I read that in the submission, I thought, oh, this is going to be an interesting Right, we one. signed him there on the spot. Didn't <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> We're not that... <laughs> That's a great <laughs> It's a great image. It's fantastic. Um, so in terms of getting that course ready for, uh, you know, polished up uh, for the for new release, when when can we expect it? Because I'm, I'm desperate to find out. <laughs> I really don't know, actually. I'm sort of quite slow with stuff like this. You know what I mean, because I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So each time I do it, I sort of polish it more. And I you know, bought a decent camera for shooting the videos now because yeah. I shoot them on iPhone. But I honestly can't tell you. <laughs> What's oh. this face, basically, then? Oh, well, you know, I'm I'm hanging for that. Well, if you're, if you're on the mailing list, you will be kept posted. And so... Well, there you go. You have to join the mail. <laughs> right. Well, reciprocally, I will keep the pressure on to, to make sure it comes. <laughs> yeah, I need, I need <laughs> Fantastic. We encourage you to write your first book. Are we ready for a random question, do you think? I think so. I think it's about time. Do you think so? Okay. Yeah. okay. Traditionally, I, I put on a silly voice for this. Right, here we go. <laughs> Rebecca's random question. So um, I've got three sons, and quite often in the car, we have very philosophical discussions about the world because I want to know how they see the world. And this is one which came up a few years ago. Uh, do you believe in fate or is it all coincidence? Um, I definitely believe there is some patterning force in the universe which you know directs affairs and so it, all the all the sort of like echoes and coincidences and you you discover one author then you find a link from that to some other field which is important to you it's all it, I definitely think there's a patterning force that you know, sort of shapes shapes our lives and, and gives sort of meaning to it so I guess you know what is fate I mean Fate sounds a bit like preordained, doesn't it? Like unavoidable. Uh, I think it's probably a bit more uh, looser than that. But I, um, you know, when people say, like all the all the, the common man, if that's not a vulgar expression, believes in coincidences, for example, f f believes they're meaningful, right? When you when you have when you encounter a coincidence, you have a feeling that it's 
telling you something about the I don't know, construction of the universe. It's not, whereas the scientists will say, oh no, it's just a random, it's bound to happen because 10,000 people you know, have that experience, whatever. But that's what the scientists say, but the common people don't. They know in their heart that those things are some synchronicities, whatever, are meaningful in a way it's probably hard to express. And uh, I'm with a common man on that one. I definitely, although I'm not sort of you know, deeply, deeply religious, I, I do think there, as I said, is some shaping, patterning force, which you know, sort of organises a lot of our life. I think the word is serendipity, isn't it? When something happens that has serendipity. Well, I, do you know what? I always felt about, you know, as we built up to this interview, the whole thing, um, well, basically coming to Borth and then <laughs> deciding that we should do a show that, uh, why don't we do something about, you know, Aboriginalism and, and, and then discovering, as a result, tiny bit of research online, finding your books and, uh, frankly, uh, you're already a great inspiration to me as a writer because I just have been blown away by what I've read so far uh, and indeed having this conversation so that feels like serendipity yeah if, if I, I, I feel like I've had a lot of serendipitous serendipitous yes. experiences I mean the two of us coming together for a start oh, God, no, no, <laughs> no we're not going to tell the story again but you know there are things that happen that you think that isn't pure coincidence it can't be pure coincidence yeah well, have we got time for me to tell you a tiny anecdote? Of course. It illustrates this. It's that uh, about two years ago, I sustained a, a cycling injury, which meant I couldn't, I couldn't cycle anymore and could barely walk. And none of the doctors were able to fix it. So I was looking, I was in pain for a year and it was looking pretty bad. And, and then I discovered the work of an American doctor who's, who was active in the 90s since died called Dr. Sarno, S-A-R-N-O. And he's... He, he's cured yeah, thousands, tens of thousands of people with, with back pain with an insight into the, the mind-body connection. And I read his book and I was cured. Right? I was like instant, almost within a week cured, restored to, to perfect health. And then I reread the, um, the first draft yeah, six months after that, yeah, I'd read his book and I reread the first draft of yeah, A Streetcar Named Aberystwyth. And one of the characters in it called Nora, which is almost an, an anagram of Sarno, said to Louis Knight, um, I used to, to have these terrible pains which the doctors couldn't cure. And then one day I realized I didn't love my husband and they went, right? And, and essentially that was the, the, the basis of his thesis about the mind-body connection, that psychosomatic pain very often is an expression, physical expression of an emotional problem which you haven't addressed. And that, that's, that, that was like, how on earth? Yeah. Well, <laughs> right? That is great. Well, I love I, that. I, the follow-up question, I mean, dare I ask, um, is what emotional pain was it that was giving you, the, I mean, obviously you had the accident, but what was it that you, you were well, able to... to well, here's the irony. I, I, I can't, I have some theories, but the point about it is, he is saying that, you know, there are an awful lot of people there going to all sorts of back pain clinics, They have, and he was a back pain specialist, and they have all the x-rays and tests, and there's nothing physically wrong with them. And for those people... He, he claimed, and there's, there's a huge community online, but there's a whole website saying, thank you, Dr. Sarno, where people <laughs> write in with their stories. And he's saying that the, 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 the pain is a, is a physical expression of an, an emotional problem, and it could be anything. It could be a traumatic incident from your childhood, or it could be from your boss at work is bullying you. you know, yep. we're, we're host to all sorts of you know, sort of emotional yeah. problems and pressures. And you, you, can't, you can't verify this, it's just his assertion, but I think it's true. So, and he says it, it's, it's expressed physically, but the real insight, which makes, makes you 
makes you better is you get you sustain the back injury and it doesn't get better and you start to get very worried about it and he says it does get better it heals within a few weeks but in the interim your body because it wants to express this emotional pain physically puts it in the same place and so and so your your back pain did heal but your your injury healed but the pain remains and you get more anxious and because it's an emotional thing but by getting more alarmed and anxious you feed the pain so it gets worse right yeah when you you read his insight i mean i read it and i was just totally smashed with it but i thought that is 100 percent exactly what happened to me and the reason it works is you you realize that it's the difference between someone firing blanks at you and firing real life rounds because you don't have an injury and you've been led to believe you have and once you understand that it just evaporates the pain evaporates that's amazing because I, 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 I'm with you on that. But don't you think it's, it's weird? So every time you're in distress, I do go to your back and massage your well, back. Well, no, I mean, I have had, <laughs> I've had months and months and months off with um, back problems to the point of, you know, not being able to stand up almost. And, yeah, it was actually what it boiled down to uh, was a period of enormous emotional uh, crisis, both domestically and, and work-wise. Um, and two things conflating and uh, I think my back was the body was saying step out of those theatres for yeah. uh, three months mm. um, and uh, the back was that, that was the manifestation of it and um, yeah yeah it's fascinating that, 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 is, that is a fascinating thing that's yeah a great answer to my question thank you <laughs> well it's been a great interview um no, Malcolm we, we could talk for hours because there's so much more I want to talk about the, the craft we have to go paddling don't we we have to go go paddling paddling. we have to go and find some lunch and which (laughs) thankfully might contain olives it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and um i'm sure at some point we'd like to speak to you again and uh, perhaps come when we do one of our usual flash visits to oxford we'll uh, yeah i did live we'll we'll bring you a chocolate 15 years so i know it quite well Well, i've really enjoyed it it's been really enjoyable and yeah let's do it again come to oxford that would be a be a great way of doing it yeah absolutely <laughs> okay. yeah well thank you so much and uh, and good luck thank you i love how this podcast brings us together people like malcolm i do yes me too i mean it was just a, a whim on our part wasn't it we were going to wales and we thought we need to find a local author we didn't realize that he was no longer local but yeah local in terms of what he writes about yeah so. he writes about it and he used to live they grew up there you know after moving from shrewsbury uh you know he mentions the Stropsis star that tickled me <laughs> uh it's a great book honestly I, I i really highly recommend uh any works by malcolm price they're really worth reading but i think he's going through that sort of period in, where you know his star has waned somewhat he's disappeared a bit he says he spends a lot of time in the pub uh but he's back writing so uh, we look forward yeah. to future projects that no, it comes in waves anyway doesn't it you i can't. think so especially if you've got a long career like that yeah uh, but yeah so much value out of that interview we loved it uh it was great fun so let's think about, well, we're on holiday, so let's not think about Hobeck things too much. I mean, we've got, you know, you're, you're sneaking away well, yeah. in the evenings. It's I mean, difficult. Yeah, can't... we can't park the whole thing. No. So... I wish we could, but we can't. No, I, you know, the, the things I've managed to arrange while we've been in transit, you know, I, I managed to pay an enormous bill and then send an enormous invoice while we were in the car and things like that. They're um, some of the best shoes I've ever seen. That lady's got some multicoloured sketches on. <laughs> They're lovely. Anyway, she smiles sweetly at us. Yes. So, yes, I am dipping in and out, and I've just realised I didn't send the newsletter on Sunday. So yeah. I will send it this morning. I didn't want to remind you because, you know, it just... I, mean, I knew, but 
I didn't want to say. Oh, you should have said. No, 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 no. That's not the point. Is we're on holiday. Well, I am going to say. How it many this of morning. our authors have written to us saying, "Take a proper break," and you just can't, can you? <laughs> Thank you, authors. Sorry, I ignore you. Well, I mean, okay, the business needs running, and I have been doing bits and bobs. So you know, it's not that it's a complete vacuum. No. But, but the fact is that we're on a week's holiday. We're here to try and give something to the kids. We haven't actually been to a bookshop yet, and that is unheard of. Well, we're going to Exeter later. There's no doubt <laughs> going to be a bookshop. In fact, there are two waterstones there, so that's one thing. But we'll try and find something smaller in India. I think there's a um, a fantastic second-hand bookshop, actually, at, yeah. the, at the bottom of the hill um, near the Roman walls. Oh, uh, OK. Near, near Countess Weir. So that's worth having a look. Um, but, I mean, what's limiting slightly is the heat, is that, you know, we can do about an hour activity, and then we start frying, don't we? So I should tell everybody that um, I found a walk, a lovely circular walk. Yeah, you did. Not too far from here. but yep. <laughs> So I dragged everybody out. We hadn't got any water with us initially, or hats or anything like that, anything sensible. When we got to the beginning of the walk, we realised our folly and uh, found a garage, bought loads of water, found some hats in the boot of the car. <laughs> and we tried the circular walk. We got about mm, nearly, a, nearly, nearly halfway. Nearly halfway, yeah. Uh, two things happened. One, we got lost. And two, we were so hot, we just turned around and went back. It was really baking hot. Cross fields. I mean, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Crossing hay fields and uh, farmland and cows and all sorts. Through little glades and mm. all sorts of things. It, it was wonderful. But, it, I mean, boy, oh, boy. I nearly killed them. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, okay, well, I have a uh, an Apple Watch, which I monitor my heart rate on, and it went up to levels that it's not been all year uh, on that walk because it was quite hilly, um, and it was extremely hot. But the fact is the the boys burned through their water rations in seconds. They did, yeah. Yeah, I think it came as a bit of a shock just how hot it was. And also part of the problem was one of the hats I found had... Um, Ooh, ooh, Donald Trump for president on it, and they didn't want to wear it. Understandably so, but yeah. <laughs> it stops you getting heat stroke. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I mean, we you know we, we we we've done a fair bit of activity here. We played tennis on the first day we got here as well, in, in, in roasting temperatures. So it's not like we haven't tried. But the fact is that you have to pace yourself. Mm. Um, we're very fortunate. The aircon in the car is amazing, so that whenever we uh, slump in there, it's hot for about ten seconds, and then suddenly it's. You mean the aircon in the reading room? Yeah, in your reading room, uh, the mobile reading room. Uh, but it, you know, it's it's been blissful, really. And um, yeah, we wanted to have this, this hollow tractor because... coming. Oh, excited now! Short sure tractor. Oh no, it's not. No, it's a bulk feed lorry. <laughs> a double. A double. I'm sorry, I got you excited for no tender. reason. Um, but the main the main thing was that you know, your eldest um, Luke is off to the university shortly. Yes, in fact, he gets his A-level results a week, uh, two days from now. So yeah. that's very exciting. It is exciting. It's very. Ner- I mean, he's, he's quite nervous about it. I mean, his whole life is about to change in a ways that he doesn't, he can't possibly comprehend. Yeah, don't say that to him. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't done so, uh, but I have been sneaking him a bottle of cider a day just to try and get him into the freshers' mindset because <laughs> he doesn't drink. Uh, terribly and but so what's the reason for giving Josh a bottle of cider he's well he's got to <laughs> I mean I think it's a sort of moral support for his brother really. yeah okay fair enough the fact that he's a booze hound is <laughs> no, no. he uh, he enjoys a drink um, not too often though uh, th- so that's partly why we're here really it's, it's you know this is a, uh, it's a change 
in the family dynamic. Yeah, change of routine, uh, get them away from the sort of reminders of their anxieties. Um, yeah. About um, Josh, in his case, going to sixth form and Luke going to university. And Toby doesn't Toby have an accent, n- so No. <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't brook those at all. I have to tell a quick story about Toby. So Toby and I dipped in the sea yesterday and Toby, uh, he had his normal pants and shorts on, his shoes and socks on and he, he was walking into the sea getting deeper and deeper and just as it, the waves were lashing against the bottom of his shorts he said, oh, I've got my phone and my headphones in my pocket, oops. And he, <laughs> went, he went in in his trainers as well, his expensive trainers which will now be ruined. And he said, oh, but it's fine because my phone can get wet for 30 minutes without any damage. Oh, yes, that really will... <laughs> How reassuring. <laughs> oh, well, that's Toby for you. He does. He is a breaker of things, isn't he? He is, yes, just like his mother. I mean, how many sets of headphones has he gone through this year? It's ridiculous. Well, one more probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, uh, we ought to wrap up the show. Uh, thank you for joining us. Next week we're speaking to the wonderful Mark Ellis, who is uh, a real veteran of the crime scene. We met him at Crime Fest, set up the interview. And yeah. Looking forward to speaking to him. He's actually in France at the moment. So. He is, yeah. So, we'll, well, I mean, you know, if we, ah, we're speaking to him tomorrow. Yeah, uh, we are. Ahead of tomorrow's show. <laughs> so we'll be across the water, the two parts of France. We could ask him whether there's lots of English cars where he yeah, is. <laughs> probably are. <laughs> Thatched cottages. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, But uh, that's it for this edition of the Hobcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcast from. We'd be extremely grateful if you did so. Uh, And don't forget to go to our website to check out all things Hobeck. That's www.hobeck.net. We have tons and tons of wonderful books uh, for you to peruse and purchase there, the paperback versions at least. And uh, we'll be back next week to send them out. We will. (laughs) We didn't bring a stock with us, so uh, there may be a slight delay. But anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And as ever, uh, it is, um, you know, it's one of the joys of our week, isn't it, doing the podcast? This week's been tough because we've done about 18 attempts to try and record it. (laughs) Each time you say it goes up. Yeah. Well, This is our 312th attempt. It probably is, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Uh, but anyway, we managed. We managed to get to almost the end. Is the battery going to? Please, run out? batteries do not. No, no, no. No. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Anyway, I've been Adrian Hobart. He has, and I've been Rebecca Collins. And this has been the podcast. We wish you a wonderful, warm, and creative week. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit